Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. We are going to read the Bible now. Um, The reading for today is Psalm 16. That is what will be preached on very soon. So if you want to open up to Psalm 16, we'll read that together. I'm reading from the NIV version. Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take their name upon my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And the second reading is from Acts 2, verses 22 to 33. So Acts 2, 22 to 33. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of my life. You will find me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we were all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for the reading. Morning. Morning. Great, lively response, love that, love that. Um, My name's Andrew, if you don't know, I'm one of the elders in training here. Um, Welcome if you are newish here or if you've been around and you consider yourself new, please make yourself known, connect with me, I'd love to actually get to know you and and welcome you into this family here. Uh, We're in uh, in the middle of this uh, sermon series called, uh, we've titled Summer Songs and um, it's essentially like a like a, it's not like a greatest best greatest hits or anything like that, but it's essentially like the preacher's most favourite psalms essentially. And to be honest, when I was asked to preach in this particular sermon series, I had 
no idea what I wanted to preach because my Bible memorization is pretty bad on me, on my behalf, that's my confession. But um, I knew some lines from, uh, from Psalms. I knew there was one particular line from like a King's Kaleidoscope, and I was like, oh, that's, that's, that line sounds kind of nice. And then I remember also doing some research and like Bible study about uh, a particular line was quoted in the New Testament, and they both turned out to be like in Psalm 16. So I was like, that's it, Psalm 16, let's go. I think that's, that's God speaking to me, like that's, we're going to do that today, so... Um, and, but upon reading Psalm 16 in its entirety, um, it doesn't speak just only to deep biblical truths, but um, it's actually really, really deeply helpful and practical for all of life. And I hope as we travel through Psalm 16 today that you find it profitable and it's actually glorifying the God. Um, so what I aim to do today with us is um, we walk through the psalm, and as a result, I, I'm hoping that we see how it affects the writer how we see how it intertwines with the story of God within history. And then I'd like to see what it means for us. Um, so if you are like a note taker, um, this is the big I, this is the kind of the big spiel of, of Psalm 16. I think, it says, I think it's something like this, that security and joy is found in the presence of God. That security and joy is found in the presence of God. Um, my hope is that as we look through this psalm today, it doesn't matter what baggage you might have coming in this morning or how edgy life might be at this moment, that you'll leave today. I hope that you'll leave today renewed with, uh, with a renewed sense of trust in God as we live in the face of Him. So, what we pray, ask the Spirit to help us this morning and see what God has for us. Eh? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, uh, but we've seen you communicated through your word, and you still communicate today through your word. Um, Lord, I pray that um, as today we come with all of our lives, all the, the baggage and the, and the issues and, the, and even the joys as well, help us not focus on those things, but help us focus on you and your word alone. I pray, Spirit, that you do the work of illumination in our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear you. Uh, convict and mold and shape us this morning. May we encounter you today. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, um, I, don't know if you're, I don't know if you were uh, thinking this when you, uh, Lauren was reading the psalm, uh, or if we, when you read psalms anyway, but I th when I read the psalms sometimes, I think that it almost sounds sometimes like a, like a mix-match, hodgepodge bunch of pithy statements put together. Does anyone get that vibe sometimes? No? No? Just me? Or maybe it's just me then. I don't know. Um, but like all literature, all literature has a point. And the author's always trying to make some sort of point. Um, and Psalm 16 is, there is, is no different. There is, it has a purpose. Um, Psalm 16 here is, it's ascribed to David. But we don't actually know much about the context of this particular psalm um, in terms of when it was written or, or what context it was written in. Um, but we know from the very first verse that something is not right. Um, and so in this psalm, we see David's flow of, his thought of, uh, flow of thought. He goes through kind of four different kind of modes. He goes through, firstly, seeking and petitioning God in the first verse. And then in the following verses, he declares truth about God, the truth that he knows about him. And then in those following verses, you kind of see that he revels in this truth, and this truth builds his confidence. And in the end, you see him rejoicing in God. So let's walk through the psalm together. Hey? Verse 1 says this, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. 
As I said before, David must have been in some sort of trouble here uh, because he's, you see him actively seeking out God. But when you think about it, who is he seeking again? David's not just seeking some random higher being with some sort of power and authority. No, no. This higher being is the God. Not just any God, but he says it's my God. David knows that if he goes to God, God will, do, will, will be his refuge because he will do what he says he's going to do. David pleads with God for protection. Why? Because he knows that God can and will. God's reputation precedes him. David knows that he's in a bit of a pickle, but he trusts God as his refuge. In verse 2, David flows into reminding himself about the God that he's pleading with. And this is where you start to see him declare the truths that he knows about God. It says this in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I want you to take note of the, the personal language here. Um, like Mikey was talking about last week, he was alluding to the word my, like the, the, the difference that makes, that, this is my Lord, you are my Lord. Not just any Lord, it's mine. And David acknowledges that this Lord, this capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles you might see, this is referring to Yahweh. This is no ordinary lowercase G-O-D God. This is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of his forefathers. And when he says this Lord, this capital L-O-R-D, this Yahweh is his Lord, he's declaring that this God of his forefathers is the one who rules and reigns over all of his life. Now, when we think about a king or someone lording something or ruling over something, we think immediately, or I think at least, of oppressive overlords. I think of tyrannical regimes like North Korea or surveillance states or even our Facebook overlord, Mark Zuckerberg. But when we think of our over, these kind of overlords, we think of abuse of power, and, they, and generally they don't have our best interests at heart. Let's be real, Facebook does not have your best interests at heart. And unless you're brainwashed, you don't really regard these authorities as the most valuable thing in your life, right? But David does just that. He considers God as absolutely supreme to everything because he compares everything as nothing compared to God. Everything is nothing compared to him. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's how invaluable, that's how, that, how invaluable and greater God is to him in everything. Now, if you head into verse three, you might, and if you read ahead, it might sound a bit interesting though, because, well, let's continue. You'll see what I mean. David says this, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. You see, David is referring to fellow Israelites following God, and he's saying that there is much joy to be had found in God's people. In fact, he says, it's in them is whom is all my delight. Now, considering verse 2, you might be thinking, didn't David just say that God, everything is, everything is nothing compared to God, but how can... How can he have all his delight in these people? How can these things be true? And that's, if it stumped you, it's a bit of an easy explanation. Let me put it this way. Think of a sports team. Think of a sports team you're a fan of. I know a few people who are like, yep, I can think of one. Um, it's a similar deal. If you're a Richmond supporter, you love Richmond players, you love hanging out with the club members, you love hanging out with other people who are also fellow Richmond supporters, and you'd probably love to gloat with them a little bit, right? 
Same thing if you're a sport, if you're if a cruise supporter. Same same deal. But you probably just like crying together. <laughs> but it's the same reason why we have concerts and stadiums and sports and these massive massive events because we get to share our love of these things, specifically with those other people who love these things as well. You might not know everyone at the footy club or down at the stadium, but there's something invigorating to your soul when you get to share something, when you get to share that thing that you hold most dearly with, with other people who hold the same thing, hold that same thing in the same regard. With David, you can see, clearly see that he treasures God as the utmost valuable thing. Why wouldn't he want to yearn to be with people who also treasure God as their most utmost valuable thing? David recognizes that joy in faith is not just an individual thing between him and God. No, his joy is also experienced and shared with other people who have that same relationship as well. And this is especially true in hard times. For contrast, David then talks about people who don't follow God and the dangers of doing so. Verse 4 says this, Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. As David is recounting of the delight that it is to be with his fellow worshippers, he's also reminded of the inferiority of other gods. Not because they just don't stack up to Yahweh, but because following them actually leads to suffering in the end. Despite all that false gods and pagan idols promise, their ways always lead to pointless suffering. Always. David reveres the Lord so much that he refuses to even speak of the names of these gods, let alone take part in their rituals, like the, the pouring out of the libations of blood. David was potentially reminded here of the Israelites that weren't worshipping the Lord God, but were worshipping pagan idols instead. Hence his comment about the, the, the holy people in the land beforehand in verse 3. But having said all of this, having, to say, having declared all these truths about God, you can see that this drives his thankfulness and gratitude in verses 5 and 6. And as you read, continue to read this passage, you get this, the sense that he's, he's starting to revel in the truth. Verses 5 and 6 says this, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. In verse 5, it mentions portion. Um, now, if you're not quite um, familiar with the Old Testament, this whole portion idea, um, David is using this image of land inheritance. Uh, so David is essentially declaring, declaring here that Yahweh alone is his kind of like land inheritance, quote-unquote. Now, if you think of an inheritance, what is it? It's, it's something that's, that's given to you, right? It's, just, it's a gift, it's handed down, it's earned, it's not earned, it's, it's, it's just gifted. And in the days of Joshua, um, the, the, in the first couple of like, books of the Old Testament, um, the land that God had given his people were divided up by casting lots. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's essentially like, almost like dice, essentially. Um, and different tribes uh, of Israel inherited different bits of land. They were called portions. Um, and then you come and have this tribe called the Levites. They were the priests of God. Um, they weren't actually given any land at all. 
But instead, if you look in Numbers 18, to 20, 18 verse 20, God promises that instead of giving them land, he would be their portion and inheritance instead. And like the priest, David is not saying that the piece of land, that he's wanting a piece of land or, or this kind of materialistic inheritance, but God was actually all he needed as his inheritance. Yes, we know that David had earthly treasures, wealth and comforts handed to him, but he valued something far greater, and that was God himself. Not God's stuff, it was God himself. Which is why David says in verse 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Again, if we return back to the days of Joshua, when the Israelites cast up their lots to cover up kind of like the lands, the portions that they drew up boundaries, they left it to almost kind of like, for us we would see it as like chance. But really they were saying that if God wills it, this is is how it's going to roll. But for David... Even though life was full of unknown chances, unknown circumstances, unknown situations, he knew there was security in his lot with God. Taking a chance with God was not really a chance at all. In God, there was delight in who he was. And when you think about it, who, why wouldn't you delight in, the, in a, being in a perfect relationship with the all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, sovereign king who loves you, who works for the good of those who love him? And again, not because he can bless you with stuff, but because of who he is, the beauty of his character. That's why in verses 7 and 8, David continues to praise Yahweh. It's in 7 and 8, it says this, I will praise the Lord who counsels me, even at night, my heart instructs me. Who better to take counsel from than from God? I don't know, he made it all. He knows it all. He sees it all. He kind of has pretty good counsel, you'd hope, right? Counsel, in this case, is not just like wise sayings or proverbs or good life advice. No, it's actually God's word, his commands, his precepts. And David is so obsessed with God and his word that it keeps him awake at night. His heart is instructing him with the counsel of the Lord in the middle of the night. Oh, man, I wish I was more like David. I wish my subconscious was more like David, that I would just wake up in the middle of the night and just think about God like that. Something to, like, I don't know how you subscribe to that kind of thing, but I don't know how you would try to do that kind of thing, but I guess you do that by surrounding yourself in the presence of God. And as you, as you keep reading in psalm, uh, reading the psalm, you see David's confidence continue to grow, and it culminates in a shift of perspective in his whole situation. In verse 8, you see him say this, I keep my eyes always, not on a situation, but on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Here he came, we, we, in the psalm, we see David coming to God, pleading for help and safety. And now, after reminding himself of the truth of God, he's focused not on his circumstances, but on his Lord. David's confidence bubbles up and to the point where he emphatically states that at his right hand, he will not be shaken. 
Now, we might be thinking, what is this, this image of the right hand? What does that kind of mean? Well, we, the image of the right hand, the thing is, think of like a, the right hand man like a battle, in battle or combat. This is where you really seriously need a strong right hand, a strong commanding officer. And this is the kind of serious help that God is to David. Now, sometimes for us, some of us, we haven't been, most of us haven't been in battle, I'm assuming. So when we think of helpers or right-hand people, we think of subservient people. We think of the, the lesser person helping the protagonist, right? We think of maybe like Robin to Batman, or we think of Anna to Elsa. And don't, and don't, give, me, think, don't give me this thing that Anna is like the equal protagonist, because when you see little girls running around, they all dress as Elsa. They never dress as Anna, right? But that, that idea of a subservient helper, a subservient right hand, is, does not do justice for God here. God is not some side hero in the story of David. No, 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 no. The protagonist of history, the God of unlimited power, comes along as helper to David. David was humble enough to know that he could not do what he needed to do in his own strength and admitted his need on God and staked his life on it. Now, let's just stand back for a sec and consider what the first eight verses have talked about so far. We see David seeking God for protection. We see him declare truth about God. We see him revel and be emboldened by that truth. What David has done and showed us is what it looks like to seek the presence of God and to trust him. David has shown us what it looks like to seek the presence of God and trust him. And all of this drives David's next thoughts. It's with this deep knowledge of God, this knowledge that sinks beyond just intellectual ascent and into the heart that we see this response from David. And verses 9 and 10 says this, Therefore, therefore, after those eight verses, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let me, your faithful one see decay. Considering that God is absolutely everything to David, he responds with gladness. That that's not just in his heart, but it overflows into spoken praise and into how he acts and into all of his life. Reveling in the presence of God leads to an abundance of gladness. Gladness that is exuberant, that is uncontainable. And what's more is that that gladness is underpinned by a glorious truth. The glorious truth that you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Now, as I said earlier, we're not quite exactly sure of the context of this particular psalm, but some scholars reckon that it has something to do with maybe David is sick bodily-wise, and, and yes, God absolutely can heal, and he does heal. But I think there's more to it than just that when than David responding to bodily healing. You see, we see the words here, realm of the dead, and we see them in NIV. Other translations put it as Sheol. Um, what it's actually trying to get at is this idea of God will not abandon his people to the place where wicked people go, particularly when they die. 
Likewise, the words decay, some other translations say the word corruption. What it's actually trying to get at is this idea of God, uh, God will not let his people be in a state of being far away from him. Whether or not the psalm was written in response to a bodily healing, David knew that one day he would die, regardless. Regardless. As big as David's problems were in the world, and trust me, David had a lot of problems, his biggest problem wasn't bodily disease. Rather, his biggest problem was a disease gnawing at his soul called sin. And the prognosis for this disease is eternal death. And because David knew of the faithfulness of God, he knew that God would not abandon him towards eternal death and total separation from him. It's interesting, though, that David calls himself the faithful one here. Because whether he knew, whether he knew this at the time of writing or not, um, David wasn't actually speaking just about his own circumstances. We here right now, we have the privilege of knowing having the whole of Scripture in front of us. And we can see that actually David was prophetically talking about someone much greater than him. The greater David, the truly faithful one, the, the truly holy one, the Messiah Jesus. We're going to put just a, 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 a finger in uh, Psalms for a moment, and we're going to go to Acts 2. Um, these are the words of Peter in Acts 2. I'm going to read from verses 25 onwards. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay, for you have, known, you, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That's, that's Peter quoting Psalm 16 right there. And then he goes on to say this. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him, and promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. If you're not familiar with this particular passage in Acts, a um, bit of context, Pentecost has just happened. This Holy Spirit has come down on the disciples and Peter is talking to a whole bunch of Jewish people and quotes Psalm 16 and gives them this spiel about it and what it actually really means. By quoting this psalm, Peter shows us that this psalm doesn't just apply to David, but it's primarily about Jesus. Jesus was the truly holy and faithful one. And we, and we know that he was crucified and died on the cross. But here's the thing. He, we, didn't say his, we didn't see his body just stay in the ground or a tomb. Jesus, the perfect, blameless one, took on the sin of the world, died for it but did not decay or become corrupted in the process. He died, but death could not hold him, and he defeated death by coming back from it. 
And as Christians, this is what we're on about, friends. This is what we're on about. This is the great news of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again. Now, as Christians, I, think, I feel like sometimes we, we talk about Jesus dying for our sins all the time. We, 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 I, think, I feel like we do that a lot. And that's true. Jesus did absolutely die for your sin. But I think we sell ourselves short here if that's all we talk about. If death is all we are talking about, we're missing half the picture. When Jesus died, he took on our sins and transgressions, but he was raised from the dead. And that shows that he fully satisfied the justice and the wrath of God. Jesus being raised up shows that our debt was paid and paid in full. As for God the Father, he was Christ's helper. He could not abandon his son to the realm of the dead. He could not, he, or, he, or leave his faith of one to see decay. And this, what this means for you and me is that if we are found in Christ, if we have accept, accepted that free gift of grace, we too will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead or see our souls see corruption, see eternal separation from God. No, we too, when we die here on this earth, we will be raised with Christ. Our biggest problem is not our financial issue or maybe the health issues we might be facing or ridicule from our work colleagues or an abusive boss. These, again, again, I'm not belittling these things. These things are big problems. They're big deals to God, and we should bring them to God. But at the end of the day, friends, our biggest problem is our sin problem that separates us from God. But we are so lucky to be living in an age where we get the benefit of seeing history. And we no longer have to second guess how God is going to save his people. What we all have to do is trust God and trust Jesus in the work he's done for us. For David, he knew that he wasn't, God wasn't going to abandon, abandon him because, too, God, no, because, because David also, too, trusted God to save him physically but also spiritually. David knew that he would be ultimately saved into the eternal presence of God. And so he ends the psalm with what it means to be near God. Verse 11 says this, For you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. When David talks about the path of life, it's not just a roadmap to heaven. It's not, it's, the whole point is not just the destination, but it's the, it's the path. By knowing God, he's able to experience life and life to the fullest. Because for David, life to the full was not found just in the presence of God. No, it was found in the presence of God. But that doesn't start just at heaven. It actually starts here in his lifetime right now on earth. David experienced joy in God by running to him, seeking safety in him, by treasuring and delighting him, by being with his people, by seeing him as the most important thing in his life, and by listening and obeying his word. So as Jesus, and so, as David journeyed on the path of life, no matter what troubles he experienced or dangers he faced or hardships he endured, he knew that his security could be found in God and that path would eventually culminate in joy in God's presence in eternity where he would experience all the riches and blessings that God has to offer at his right hand. Now you might be thinking, man, Andrew's been gone on for a long time now. 
What does this mean for Australia? Well, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, I think from this reading this psalm, I think there are three kind of things I'd like to suggest. Um, I think the psalm tells us to do kind of three things here. Firstly, it's to learn to treasure Christ for all the years. Secondly, it's to practice living in the face of God. And thirdly, with that, we, should, we should rejoice in the Lord always. I say again, we should rejoice. I'll go through that again. Um, learn to treasure Christ for all years. And when we read the psalm, um, we see that David has really a, a holistic, all-encompassing view of God. He doesn't, he doesn't take uh, just the love and comfort and mercy of God, but he also takes the, the all-powerful, almighty, all-justice, uh, the all-just, the all right, sorry, the almighty, all-wrathful all king of the world, right? King of the universe. But as Christians, I think we sometimes can fall into the, the trap of overemphasizing or maybe underemphasizing particular attributes of God. Uh, we'd like to treasure the bits you know, that, that kind of resonate with us a bit more, and we kind of like subtly discount the ones that don't. And some of us, this, we, might even, we might not even be consciously aware of this. I know that for many Christians, we love the Jesus who is gentle and kind and lowly, which is true, he is. But we seldom talk about the Jesus who flipped flip tables and, and whipped fools in the temple, right? Who, he, he was zealous for the Lord. Conversely, some of us, we talk about people's need for Jesus and they need saving from their sins, and they absolutely do. But sometimes we neglect the bits about Jesus loving the outcast and the lowly or him genuinely weeping over his friend Lazarus dying. We need to recognize that Jesus is not merely a ticket to heaven, but he's neither a co-pilot for life. We can't just reduce him to those things. We can't reduce to Jesus just being the means to living for eternity because the whole point of eternity is to enjoy him forever. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus was right, risen up and sat at the right hand of the Father and at the right hand of the Father there are eternal pleasures forevermore. It kind of makes sense that Jesus is that eternal pleasure. Having said that, we can neither reduce to be Jesus to be that feel-good kind of pill that we take when life feels a bit crummy and a bit hard. Yes, God has given us meaning and value in, in our lives, but he must be that for all of our lives, not just the, the bad times, but the good times and the ordinary times. In preparing for the sermon, I don't normally watch other people's sermons because I feel that's a bit distracting, but um, classic John Piper had something to say about this. Um, he, says, he says the whole point of Psalm 16 is this. God will bring you, body and soul, through life and death, to full and everlasting pleasure if he is your safest refuge and your supreme treasure and your sovereign Lord and your trusted counselor. And to be honest, I quit listening to the sermon after that because that was like way too long of a line. But that's, it's true. There's so much to Christ here. There's more to him than we realize. And we're actually doing a disservice to ourselves when we pass on discovering all of who he is. When we treasure Christ for who he truly is, when we treasure the totality of his character, the beauty of his perfection, the wonder of his majesty, that is how we get to experience life to the full and we get to experience that him now into eternity because he's made the path of life known to us. Learn the treasure of Jesus for all he is. Secondly, um, if the big idea behind Psalm 16 is security and joy is found in the presence of God, then we need to 
practice living in the face of God. I want to run a thought exercise here. You don't have to, don't have to raise your hands or anything, but how many, day, how many times a day do you actively think about God? How many times? On an average, like, work day. I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you, Trippy. I'm just, just thinking, making you think for a sec. Um, life, I get it. Life gets busy. You're focused. You don't think about God. Um, I'm not saying that every moment you need to be thinking about God in every second of your life. I mean, like, if you're a heart surgeon, please focus on not cutting, like, the, the coronary artery. Like, please just focus on your job. Like, but Psalm 16 is full of language that describes what it looks like to have your identity wrapped up in God. Life is meant to be lived out of that identity, lived out in the face of God. This is, this is why it says in Philippians 2 that we are to work out of our salvation in fear and trembling. Living on the, in the face of God does not mean that God is spying on you and he's about to lightning bolt you when you do something wrong. No, but a healthy awareness of God's omnipresence, because he is there. A healthy awareness of that will help us be more thoughtful and intentional about what we think and say. Because we don't live for ourselves, we live for an audience of one. Brothers and sisters, this will require effort. This is not going to come naturally. Because you know what comes naturally? Our selfishness. That's the biggest enemy to living in the face of God. But like any discipline that draws us to God, it's going to be worth it, both for our joy and for God's glory. Because when we live, when we practice living in the face of God, we experience his presence in our lives. Which ties me into our last kind of application. Hold on, we're almost there. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice. And this is more or less taken from verse 9 here, where it says, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body will also, also will rest secure. You might be thinking, does this... Does this mean I have to be fake happy, Andrew? You surely don't mean you have to be like a golden, you don't mean to be like a golden retriever bouncing around all the time, right? Is that what you want? No, I'm not saying that you have to put up this image of being perfect and happy and all the time. That's, sometimes we've got to lament. Sometimes we feel emotions. Sometimes we struggle with work and life and relationships. And it's okay to have anxiety and those feelings. But the people of God are marked. They are marked by joy because they have the best news in the world. They have the best news in the world. They have access to, the inf- to infinite joy because they have unfettered access to the Father. When we think about the word rejoice, if you break up the word, what does it mean? Re means to like kind of do again. Joy, re, to, to try, rejoice means to try finding joy again. Or in other words, to, to gladden. It's a doing word. We need to try uh, to find our joy again because it doesn't come naturally. And the way we find our joy again is by surrounding ourselves with the truth and the presence of God. It's like kindling on a fire. We need to stoke the flames of our affections with the truth. Because our affections are so fickle, right? We need to live with God in sight and remind ourselves of the amazing beauty of the gospel and that he is ours and we are his. You see it here with David. He starts off with a petition. 
saying to God that he's in danger, and surely, slowly but surely, he see him grow in confidence by telling himself about the truth, by exalting God for who he is. And towards the end of the psalm, you say that he will always keep his eyes on the Lord, and he will not be shaken. Like David, we must remind ourselves, we must re-gospel ourselves, we, whether it be through, be through prayer or reading the word or in song or fasting, and definitely by doing it with God's people. This is how we rejoice always in the Lord. So, so as I wrap up this morning, I want you to challenge you to do a couple of things this week. To remember all that God has done for us. That in this presence, we find, his, we find ultimate joy and security. That when we treasure the gift of Jesus for all he is, that's where we find true joy. Let's practice living in the face of God, thinking about him as much as we can. Not that our identity, not that our identity is rooted in how often we think about him, but that is what we live out of. And I pray that we always find a way to rejoice in the Lord always. Let's pray together and give thanks to God. Um, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for um, just not leaving him in the ground when he died for us, but you raised him from the dead. That when you raised him from the dead, our, our debt was paid in full. I pray that you help us live in the full reality of that. Not that it's just some sort of like intellectual sense, but that be heartfelt transformation because of it. Pray, Spirit, to, Spirit, stir our affections this morning. We need you to do life. We are helpless without you. Thank you, for you, thank you God, for the, the confidence that we can have in you, that you are the God of the universe who is so high and mighty, but you came through Jesus who was gentle and low. I pray that you help us make you our greatest desire and our greatest treasure and that overflow into all of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.